Welcome to the Jewish Education Experience Podcast with your hosts, Yasmina and Ari, who will be uncovering gems of wisdom with Jewish educators from around the world. To support our podcast, you can go to www.patreon.com forward slash Jewish Education Experience Podcast. Our guest today is Ruchi Koval, and Ruchi is the co-founder and associate director of Congregation JFX, an innovative community in Cleveland, Ohio. She has been a Jewish educator for two decades, leading self-development groups for adults and teens, and mentoring educators around the world. Ruchi is a certified parenting coach, motivational speaker, musician, author, and mother. She is a trip leader for Momentum, inspiring hundreds of women on their journeys in Israel. She is also a columnist for the Cleveland Jewish News and the author of two books, Conversations with God and Soul Construction, which my husband and I just finished, I should add. Um, you can find Ruchi on Facebook, Instagram, and Meaningful Minute, and also on her blog at outoftheorthobox.com. You can find all of her podcasts on iTunes or Spotify. Hello, Ruchi. Um, welcome to the Jewish Education Experience podcast, and thank you so much for being with us today. Oh my gosh, thank you for having me, and um, thank you for uh for reading the book and for, you know, tracking me down and for inviting me to come here today. I appreciate that. It's definitely our pleasure and looking forward to getting to know you a little bit more and um, finding more about your book and the work that you do. So will you please tell us a bit more about yourself and how you began your journey in education? Sure. So I grew up uh, religious here in Cleveland and I went to day school my whole life uh, through 12th grade, followed by a year of seminary in Israel. Um, my husband also grew up right here in Cleveland. We were actually neighbors growing up. Wow. Um, yeah, cute story. So we actually dated in Israel, ironically, um, and neither of us, like we were both really young when we got married. I was 19, he was 22. And like, we didn't really know for sure what we wanted to be when we grew up. And it was a journey that we really discovered together. Um, I was very interested in writing and publishing. I still am. And so I was working, when we lived in Israel, I was working for Feldheim Publishers, which is an English language publisher of Judaica, which I really, really enjoyed. And I sort of got trained in on the job. I started out doing proofreading, and then I ended up doing some copy editing. And I I really loved the opportunity. Plus, I got to read some amazing books. Um, my husband, meanwhile, was studying in yeshiva, just, you know, kind of like starting out our married life with a very solid basis of spiritual grounding. And then we were going to move back to the States at some point because uh, we were just we were there on student visas. And then we didn't really know what would happen after that. Like maybe I would go back to college. Maybe he would go into business. His, his dad has a business that, you know, we sort of were going to wait and see. Okay. And then he had... Um, he had a random conversation with a guy on a bus with this is actually in the introduction to my to my book, Soul Construction. Um, and this man was ta- chatting with him. He was a neighbor of ours. And he was telling my husband that it is uh, obligation uh, just as a person should give 10 percent of their income to charity, to tzedakah, a person should also donate 10 percent of their time to the community. Wow. And my husband was very taken by this by this teaching and the the gentleman whose his name was Rabbi Feuerstein 
he really pushed my husband kind of in that short conversation. And he said to him, so what are you going to do? And my husband came home that day and he said, I think I want to start volunteering at Asha Torah, which is a school for Jewish adults who are revisiting their Judaism and taking a deep dive into, into Jewish studies in a way that they had not, you know, been able to do as kids. And my husband started tutoring there and he started just helping a couple guys with their Hebrew reading and things like that. And then one day he comes home and says, I think that this is my calling. And I think that I would like to be a rabbi. (laughs) So that was unexpected. Uh, And I was like, I mean, that's beautiful. And I'm so proud of you. But like, I never really saw myself as a rabbi's wife. Like to me, that was a real, you know, that was a real like identity and responsibility. And I just, I just wasn't necessarily prepared for that. But it's something that really grew on me over the years. And I would say that, you know, here we are like some 25 years later, and I've really found my own space in, you know, being involved in giving back to the Jewish community, teaching in my own right, and um, just finding my own niche with it, which really did start because my husband decided to become a rabbi, but it really only continued because I sort of caught the passion. It sounds Mina Shemayim that it was meant to be. You're meant to go on that path. Yeah, exactly. And the irony is that when I was growing up, I used to like, um, I was always like a student. I was one of those like academic types. And so sometimes I would help my classmates study for tests or things like that. And I always like loved being in the role of explaining things. It just sort of like, like when I was doing that, I was like, I am in my groove, man. And everybody used to tell me, you should be a teacher, you know, but I was like, oh, that's so stereotypical. Orthodox Jewish girl grows up to be a teacher. You know, I'll do something <laughs> like, I'm going to be a publisher. I'm going to be an author, whatever. So I sort of resisted it for a while because of those reasons. But here I am. I'm a teacher and I love it. So there you go. We need Great educators, that's for sure. <laughs> so how did you guys go about founding the congregation in Cleveland? How did that happen? So that's a good story. And very much Min Hashemayim, as you said. Like, we've really seen the hand of Hashem sort of ushering us through various portals. It's just really been kind of amazing. Um, but to your question, so when my husband, my husband enrolled in a rabbinical training course in Israel, and part of the commitment was that after a couple of years, you would go back to the States and serve a community. Okay. So after a couple of years of training, we moved to Buffalo Grove, Illinois. That was our first, you know, rabbinical position. And we took a two-year contract, and we really, really loved it there. And we met some incredible people who became lifelong friends. But after two years, I found that I was feeling very lonely because um, like my kids were going to the Orthodox schools in Chicago and it was a 45 minute commute. And about Chicago, there's a lot of traffic and it just got like all my kids friends lived so far away. And I there were just very few people who were Shabbat observant and I, I missed my family. And after living in Israel for almost five years, you know, where we had been extremely far away from family. I was just really craving to go back to Cleveland where we both grew up and to just sort of, at that point, I was expecting our fourth child. Okay. 
Um, and so we moved back to Cleveland. Uh, that was actually a very difficult decision. My husband very much wanted to stay. He felt we were making a tremendous difference. He was really in his groove, and and I just didn't feel like I could do it. So it was a hard decision to make to move back to Cleveland. Um, but when we did, um, my husband started meeting young families because he was he is a loyal, so he does brisses for people. Ah, okay. And so he was meeting young unaffiliated families and we started doing home study groups. So we would get together with the parents, a few couples in someone's home and have some refreshments and drinks and just talk about like different Jewish topics like marriage and happiness and, you know, the meaning of life and and the deeper meaning of the holidays. And, and these adults were so like kind of blown away by this deep, rich, relevant version of Judaism that they didn't feel they had encountered in their in their life growing up. And they said to us, like, we don't want to send our kids to to Sunday school where they're just gonna not like it and be bored. And we want you guys to start a Sunday school, which we had no idea how to do that. But that's part of the advantage of being young. You just do it anyway. <laughs> For sure. You just jump so we, right in. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So we started our Sunday school and one thing led to another. And then uh, the parents were saying, we want you guys to do high holidays. We want you guys to do Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. We want you guys to do the Bar and Bat Mitzvahs. We want you guys to do Hanukkah. And before oh my goodness. we it, we basically had a congregation on our hands. That's so amazing. Now, at, but when you guys initially moved, but there was already a thriving community in Cleveland, was that just the Orthodox community was thriving and the other movements were not so much? There is a thriving Jewish community here across the board. I mean, Cleveland is a very, very, um, really rich community and there's a ton of Jewish infrastructure. There are schools and synagogues and kosher food and all kinds of opportunities, but there was a niche that was not being filled. And that was, we were, we were working with young families who had little kids and we were, and they were also very like unfamiliar with this type of Judaism. So many of them didn't really like know Orthodox people or they didn't, some of them didn't know that Shabbos included Saturday to them. Shabbos was Friday night. Um, and, and maybe had never even really met in a, in a deep, meaningful way or, or had a friendship with a religious person. So we just, we, what we were noticing as we were sort of, you know, we didn't necessarily set out to create our own, but what we were noticing is that we were providing something that actually didn't exist, um, which was this really warm and welcoming community for adult Jews who knew very little about their heritage and creating a social and spiritual community where people could come together and have all their Jewish needs met cradle to grave. That's awesome. What a, what a blessing that you guys were able to fill that need. I know it's really, oh really been an unbelievable. I mean, just yesterday I was sitting in our shul and, um, cause now we have, you know, services every single week, which t- it took us a while to get there. Cause that's, that's a commitment for people. Um, and I'm sitting there in shul and I'm just watching all the people who are there and, just my husband up there, you know, running the service with our assistant rabbi and our chazan. And, and I'm just thinking to myself, and, and we, we just bought our building. We had been renting space in this beautiful, beautiful building, which used to be a synagogue. And then it was sold to a college and now it's a synagogue again. And so I'm sitting there and I'm like, this is my happy place. Wow. This is a, ha- this is a happy place for so many people. And there's like 
as much as I fought this role for so long, like this, there's no question in my mind that that this is what I was created to do. Definitely. Well, it's really amazing to hear that. Mm -hmm. That's important. We need young families. We need kids, you know, to keep it, keep it going. Uh So call a kavod to you guys. Thank you. Thank you. Are there any educators that have inspired you or who you particularly admire? Oh, so many. Um, Let's see. When we first lived in Buffalo Grove, Illinois, um, I was very inspired by Rabbi Daniel and S.D. Deitch. Um, They live in Chicago, and they've been running programs for Jews of the North Shore, like suburban Chicago, for years and years. And they're probably like, I don't know, 10, 15 years older than us. So they were very much our mentors when we first moved to to Chicago area. And just SD really inspired me in a couple of ways, in many ways. But I would say one of the most memorable things she said to me was to always make sure to put my own kids first. Mm, That's important. Yes. And I think it's so tempting as a young educator to want to be there for everyone all the time. And, you know, in Jewish education, like as opposed to, let's say, a mental health professional, there is no supervision and there's no formal boundaries. And so you really have to learn how to create your own. And it took time for me to learn how to do that. Um, so she very much encouraged us, like, for example, on Shabbos, like, you know, between the Friday night dinner and Shabbos lunch to have one meal where we would have guests from our shul and one meal where we would not and only pay attention to our kids. That makes sense. And that was, that was like, believe it or not, a real eye opener for me. And she just, she has always inspired me, um, in her soft and gentle way of leading and teaching. Another person who has really inspired me is Lori Palatnik. Um, she started a few communities, but one of them is she started the village shul in Toronto And when my husband and I were first wanting to create our synagogue, we traveled to Toronto to spend the Shabbos there. She didn't live there anymore. She had moved on. But um, her legacy in that shul was very much our model for what we wanted our shul to to be like. And in many ways, the structure of our shul is patterned after what we saw that week in in, uh, Toronto. And now Lori Platnick is the founding director of Momentum, which takes Jewish moms to Israel, and I am now an educator for Momentum. And so she has been my mentor in in many ways on that front. Um, She's just so passionate and so articulate. Um, And she has such a clear vision for where the Jewish people is headed. So she she has had a a deep impact on me. Uh, And then one more, just from a totally different angle, uh, there's a woman who lives here in my community. She actually she actually lives in Wycliffe, Ohio, which is there's a yeshiva, tells yeshiva. It's like it was transplanted from Lithuania after World War II. And it's in this little like community, you know, like a good 10 miles away from where I live. Um, and she lives there in that yeshiva community. Her husband, who has passed away, used to be one of the leading rabbis there. And she is just like this incredibly holy woman and I just love learning Torah from her. And she has been my teachers, my, my kids teacher over the years. And in, in many ways, she's like the mentor that I go to when like I'm having a personal issue in my personal life and I need to call someone for guidance and advice. Like she's the one that I would call. It's important to have, I think 
different people, right, that you can consult with and guide because maybe this person can help you in one area that someone else may not be as knowledgeable in. And mm-hmm. it's it's great that um, you were able to find those mentors and have those people to to look up to. Yeah, very much so. One of my friends says she has a board of directors, so she she puts people on her board of directors. So you don't you don't necessarily know that you're getting on it, and also. <laughs> You're, once you're on it, you're on it for life. So never getting off. <laughs> yeah, you're never getting off. So I, I always kind of share that idea because it is important. Like I would say the, the three women that I mentioned are on my board of directors, but then there's also like um, my mother and my mother-in-law and like I have, a, I have a good friend who's like 15 years older than me and she's a mentor and just I have different people who I like, you know, like you said, like I will draw on their wisdom for different reasons or even even my best friend from growing up who knows me better than so many other people, you know, and I'll be like, okay, just bouncing this off you like, am I crazy? You know, and she will be so honest and straight with me. So you need different people from different walks of life and who know you from different facets to, to guide and direct. And, and it's, that's been really key. Definitely. I agree. How do you talk about God and how does this differ with the various age groups that you work with? That's such a great question. I, I got to tell you, I was just on a recording for a a webinar and I'm usually like very unapologetic when I talk about God. Like I talk about God as though everybody I'm talking to believes in him. I do try to offer a very accessible way to access God, but I I do unapologetically believe in God and that that's the angle from which I broadcast, so to speak. So anyway, I was on this webinar and the other person that I was on the webinar with said, well, Rochi, you know, not all of our audience members, you know, have accessibility to God like that. So, you know, is there another way that we could describe this? And, and, and this is something that I have struggled with over the years, like how to manage the God piece, because right. you don't want to lose people before you get out of the gate, but neither do you want to compromise what you believe or be duplicitous or you know, kind of pull a bait and switch on people. Also, I sort of feel like people are looking to me because I have a faith and a belief that they, I'm not saying all of them, but that many of them would like to have. And so they're relying on me in a way to provide that faith, right? Um, And I was sort of um, thinking about the AA model, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous. Alcoholics Anonymous is an unabashedly spiritual program, and there's, they talk about the higher power and God and blah, 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 you know, and it's like, it's like very much a take it or leave it kind of thing. Right. If you want, if you want to, you know, connect to that aspect, great. And if you want to just take the other aspects, great. And I sort of, I sort of, after this webinar that I literally just recorded like a few days ago, I was thinking to myself, like, that, that's kind of like the model that I, I'm going to be unabashedly gaudy and whoever want, you know, and not just unabashedly, but like I said, like really providing a model of God that I feel like people can access and also being really honest with my own struggles with faith because nobody has perfect faith all the time. And so, right. So like acknowledging to people, like being weak in your faith sometimes doesn't mean that you're a loser Jew. It just means you're a human Jew. I think people need to see that. They need to see that, you know, we might not know have this perfect relationship all the time and that's okay. Exactly. But, but still with all of those, you know, softening of stance, I will always emerge 
unabashedly, <laughs> you know, gaudy. And even though I'm not, that's not the only thing I'm going to talk about, but it does underscore every single thing I do. So I'm not going to try to separate myself from that belief. I mean, obviously where it's socially inappropriate, I, you know, that's one oh. thing, but I'm not going to um, edit my teachings or dilute them because some people might be struggling with that perspective. That's okay. They they can take it or leave it. And I'm not for everyone. And that's okay too. That makes sense. Do you have any um, non-Jewish people that follow you also or learn with you or? There's a few non-Jewish women who come to my classes who for sure who follow me online. There's this one woman in particular who has been so grateful in reaching out to me and making contributions to our synagogue uh, telling me that she is a non-Jew and she wants to follow the ways of God and she's so grateful that I put my stuff online so that she can follow me and learn, you know, different things. And she never heard of Musser before, which is, you know, a lot of what I teach, which is a Jewish path towards spirituality through character improvement. And so, you know, while my content is definitely, you know, um, primarily geared towards Jewish people because, you know, Judaism isn't into getting out there and saying, everybody should be Jewish, follow me, sure. you know, right? But by the same token, I know that by putting my stuff out there in, on the internet, anybody can find it. And if somebody is looking for this type of wisdom, you know, it's there for them. And so I'm grateful if it can help any person, you know, to find what they're looking for, to be a better person, to to connect to God, then I'm, I'm grateful for that. So I, I definitely have had people reach out to me and say, you know, I'm a Gentile and thank you so much. And, you know, I actually just had somebody post yesterday on our JFX Facebook page, uh, a non-Jewish Christian person, um, 59 years old. I guess he was really struggling with the standoff at the Texas synagogue hostage situation, which thank God has been resolved. Um, but he was posting like, why do so many people hate Jews? And really just asking me about anti-Semitism. And wow. I was like, you know what? That's like a difficult conversation to have on Facebook, but I'm so glad that he found me because, you know, I, I feel like I, I, I can have that conversation. Whereas you know, if you just throw it out there on the internet, who knows what kind of responses you're going to get and, and, you know, what kind of people are going to weigh in. So right. that's the beauty of the internet, which we know has a very ugly side as well, but it has tremendous power for good. I, I agree. I think so, too. Now, education or chinuch in Hebrew, it can be a little bit of an amorphous term. How would you define education? So whenever you need to define your terms, it's important to distinguish if you're going to be doing that in Hebrew or English. And the reason I say that is because English is a language that morphs and changes over the years, like every other language. Um, and modern Hebrew is the same way. Modern Hebrew changes and morphs. I, I'm always amazed when I go to Israel and I hear so much Arabic and, and English slang um, mixed into Hebrew. But if you're going to look at the biblical word, so biblical Hebrew doesn't change. And the same thing that something meant, you know, 5,000 years ago, it still means the same thing today. So chinuch, which is a biblical word, which is what education means, um, it comes from the word training. L'chanich, it's, it's a word that's used for army service. When when Abraham in, in the Torah was preparing for army, it says chanichav, his trainees. That's right. And so it means to like train somebody for a particular yeah. task. 
And, and the word Hanukkah is also from a similar root. And it means like to, to dedicate or prepare like that. In that case, it's the dedication of the temple. And so the common theme here is that you're preparing for a future purpose. And so in that case, it's very much like a long-term growth process. You're not talking about something that's a quick fix. You know, like uh, you go to a makeup artist and in, you know, a half hour, you've got total transformation. Well, it doesn't work like that in the world of education. There is no total transformation. And so education is a long-term process. And that's why, like, I'm really glad that I'm doing community education because you really get to stay friends and stay in relationships with people for decades. And like yesterday, we just had over for Shabbos lunch a couple that started JFX 20 years ago. We were just talking about it was it was literally almost to the month, 20 years since we had met. And we're very much in each other's lives. And, and we've learned so much from them. And they've learned so much from us. That's a long-term process. That's what makes education so hard. You know, particularly raising our own kids, which is also a process of education. Because... It's such a long-term process, and there are no easy fixes, and there are no immediate, there's no immediate gratification. I mean, every now and then, you definitely will get this amazing moment of gratification. Really, overall, the process of education, whether it's your own kids, or it's your friends, your students, however you're doing your education, it's preparation and training as a long-term process, and so it requires an incredible amount of patience. And humility and, and learning that you're not the one who makes anything happen. You plant the seeds, you water them as best you can, and then there are going to be a hundred other factors that are going to come into play. And either it'll take or it won't, or a little bit, or somewhat, or not exactly in the way you thought. And and really that's where the patience and humility have to come in. You know, it's so interesting because um I was reading one of the works by Rabbi Samson Raphael Hirsch. And he was saying that exact same thing about, um, sorry, my baby here. Um, Those are beautiful sounds. (laughs) Don't ever apologize. (laughs) Um, So I love that you said that too, because that just makes it even more firm that that's what we're really doing. It's it's a long-term process. That's how we have to think of it. That's right. What have you found to be the biggest challenge that you face? as an educator? Just sort of continuing on what I was just saying before. I think that when I forget that I'm not the boss of the result, that's where I've gotten really frustrated and disappointed. And that's where you start to take things personally, like, well, we're having this, you know, big event or Shabbaton or this great speaker or this great Hanukkah party. Why aren't these people coming? I'm friends with them. We're so close. We're so connected. Like, you know, sometimes it seems like people aren't sort of delivering on this perceived contract and it's really damaging. I mean, I'm not saying that here I am immune to that after all these years, but over the years, I have been better at depersonalizing these things and, you know, just growing a thicker skin and reminding myself that I am a public servant. I am a servant of Hashem. I'm here to do my job. I'm here to do my best. I'm here to try to pump spirituality into the world. And whoever wants to bite will bite. And it, it's been it's been a difficult process to not get sort of dragged down by the disappointments of the job and, you know, where people don't seem to appreciate what you're doing. 
Um, of course, it's been balanced by an enormous amount of grati- gratitude and gratification. But when I forget that it's not about me, it can become really hard to take. I agree. I think that's um, definitely hard at times. We, I guess it's human nature, right? We, we take things a bit personally. It's good to be able to teach ourselves to take a step back. It's not personal, you know. Um, like people giving people the benefit of the doubt, they're not necessarily doing it as a personal attack. I right. think that's really important. Yeah. So with those challenges, how do you stay motivated to keep going? <laughs> Good question. <laughs> well, I have a couple of answers to that. First of all, like I said, there is so much gratitude and gratification. And that, that really keeps me going. Like last night I did a class for five high school girls and we were talking about the manna, excuse me, the manna from heaven and the, you know, this miraculous food that the Jews had in the desert and like what, trying to just give them the message that like these ancient, you know, stories from the Torah have great import for us in our contemporary lives. And they were just eating it up. And I'm sitting there thinking to myself, like, yes, this is why I do what I do. You know, so when you have moments like that, it really makes everything else worth it. Um, also, my husband and I are very much a team. And we fetch to each other. We cheer each other up. We, you know, we remind each other why we're doing what we're doing. So we support one another very much. Um, and I also have a peer network of friends who are also Jewish educators across the country, and we very much help each other out, both practically with advice and, you know, how do you run this kind of event? Like, just recently, someone was like, who has run a great Tubishvat Seder? You know, send me your info. But also with emotional support, you know, where there's a disappointment or there's, a, you know, like, why am I doing this? Or kind of feelings of burnout, and we really, we really bring each other up. And and some of my friends in that peer group are no longer in education because, you know, education in general is a field that's very subject to burnout. And some people need to take a break from it in order to uh, keep their own, you know, their self intact. Um, But those, those are the ways that I really, uh, you know, and, and I really pray, I really dive in that my work should be successful and that Hashem should bless my efforts and, and just remembering, you know, again, that it's not about me, it's about Hashem, and it's my job to just do what I can. Amen. I like that, for sure. I'm curious, since you work with your husband, obviously, uh, you have your family family unit that you need to make sure is strong and all that, but you work together, too, and it's so much intertwined. How do you find the balance? I hope yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. It's been uh, a process. Um, my husband and I have very different work styles. He's kind of ADD. I am totally not. (laughs) Um, I'm very scheduled and boundary and blah, blah, blah. Um, but we have really like, I mean, we've been married 28 years now. We've really found a good rhythm with how to make it work. And part of that is like, he's happy to talk about JFX all the time, you know, and I don't want to talk about JFX all the time. Right. All right. So We've, we've come to this agreement that like how, how to not be at work all the time and the answer, the kind of, you know, rule that we've come up with is if it's a stressful question, like 
How do we get more young professionals to sign up for our Tubishvat event? Well, that's a stressful question. That's called work. And we're we're not talking about that unless we are planning to talk about it, right? That, <laughs> that's, that's not the kind of thing you're allowed to throw out on a Shabbos walk, okay? Um, but if it's not stressful, like, oh my gosh, let me tell you about this amazing conversation I just had with our board member. If it's a, you know, inspirational or warm and fuzzy kind of, you know, comment or question, then that's not work. And that you're allowed to talk about. That's important for sure. What advice would you give to new educators who are just beginning their journey? I would definitely share like what SD Deitch shared with me, which is don't be afraid to put down your boundaries and to put your own kids first. You know, you don't have to say yes to everything people ask you. You don't have to respond to every email that same day, you know, so really like to have the guts and the assertiveness to put your boundary down so that you don't kind of like lose yourself in the process. Um, Also to cultivate mentors, like I said, whom, you know, you bounce things off of, particularly if people are working as a husband and wife team, which is not uncommon in the world of education. Um, And it can get contentious. Like, you know, when we were deciding, like I said, to leave Buffalo Grove, those were very difficult conversations. And we were pretty, we were pretty new. We were only married for like, I don't know, seven years at the time. Okay. Our kids were really little, like, and we did reach out to mentors to help guide us so that it takes the heat off the relationship. For sure. Um, and, and like, I think those are really, really important. Um, also to stay very much plugged into your community of origin, to your family. So you don't become like kind of swallowed up by your work because that's, that's tempting too. And, you know, when my husband and I first started out, um, I'm going back here, you know, 20, almost 25 years ago, nobody had smartphones, nobody was wired 24 seven, you know, you automatically couldn't answer your emails all the time because your emails was only, you know, that was only in your computer in your house. Right. So now it's even more important to set those boundaries because everything is pinging your phone all day. And if you're not careful, you can really be swallowed up by, by what you do professionally. And even though what you do professionally is something you're super passionate about and it probably has a lot to do with your identity. Right. But nevertheless, it's still, it still should have a separateness from your private life. Definitely. And thank God for Shabbat. I mean, we we at least are forced to have that time to just exactly reconnect with what's important and serve Hashem and be with our families and friends and get out for walks, you know, all those things. Exactly. So true. I think about that all the time. It's, you know, I was uh, reading a mom blog the other day. It's, um, a non-Jewish woman, and she was saying that one thing she instituted with her family now is like a Shabbat where they don't use phone and, te- you know, they just spend from Friday night till Saturday night just with family. I'm like, oh my <laughs> gosh, that's amazing. Right. That's great. <laughs> How can we help our students build a strong Torah foundation? So I think the key word there is help. Um, and you can't help somebody who doesn't want to help themselves. So if they are motivated to build a strong Torah background, then by all means, you know, when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. I forgot. Um, so then you, you know, 
so then the answer to the question will be a few different things. First of all, and I would say first and foremost, as educators, we have to be role models and we have to lead by example. And sometimes that's going to require some difficult introspection, you know, right. and say, well, am I passionate about prayer? And am, am I passionate about Shabbos? Am I passionate about, you know, dressing like a Jewish woman? And if I'm not, I'm not going to be successful in passing that along to somebody else. So I might have some inner work to do before I, you know, position myself as a, a mentor or an influencer. Um, and that doesn't mean that we have to have it all worked out. That doesn't mean that we have to be perfect. But it does mean that in general, we are functioning as a role model. For sure. Um, and then also, like, we really very much have to do our own Torah study. So, like, we have to, we can't just be teachers. We also have to be students in our own right. So, like, make sure you're taking your own classes, listening to your own Torah lectures, inspiring yourself, filling yourself up. You know, um, the Chavetz Chaim, who was a rabbi who lived in Poland about 100 years ago, actually he passed away about 100 years ago, um, he used the metaphor of like boiling hot water. And he said that if the teacher is boiling hot water, then the student will get hot water. If the mm. teacher is like hot water, then the student will get warm water. And if the teacher is warm water, then the student will get cool water. Wow. So we have to sort of be bubbling over with this, you know, and again, it doesn't mean every second of every day, nobody is, but in general, like if we're bubbling over, if we're on fire, if we're so excited about Judaism, then the spillover will be inevitable, but you can't give anybody what you don't have. That's true. That's definitely true. I, I agree very much so. And um, before you also mentored, mentioned uh, modeling and, and the importance of mentorship, how does someone, you know, maybe a new educator starting out, they, they're not sure who to reach out for to guide them and to mentor them. How would they go about finding the right people? First of all, thank you, Internet. We do have Facebook groups and there are WhatsApp groups. And, you know, I think it's a matter of really keeping your radar up to find those opportunities to network and you know, if you hear a lecture, like I've had people reach out to me whom I barely know and say to me, you know, I'm looking for a mentor. Like, would you be willing to be available, you know, for me? And I, I, and I say, yeah, sure. I'd be happy to do that. And they're like, sorry, if that's weird, I feel like I'm asking you out on a blind date. <laughs> I'm like, it's not weird because I was literally you 20 years ago. And, and I'm so impressed with your courage that you ask that question. It, you know, in the business world, this is the same thing. Like um, Sheryl Sandberg in her first book, she was the CEO of Facebook. She wrote a book called Lean In about how women should be leaning in more towards business opportunities. And one of the things she talks about a lot is mentorship. Right. And she says that women should be reaching out to women and, and yeah, like literally asking them, like, will you be my mentor? And it's no different in the world of education. And so like, how do you do that? Well, you know, when you're in your professional opportunities there, I mean, now with COVID, you don't have this so much, but there were always educational conferences and conventions, you know, make the time to go on those things and to meet those people and to pay attention to the lecturers and ask yourself who speaks to you and who, you know, who do you feel like, you know, is approachable to your personality. And it's really like, it's a project. It's something that it needs to be like an important quest. And if you really are looking, you will find 
people to to mentor you and it, and it will take a bit of you know courageous gumption to approach these people and say you know I, I really love your message um, or I've been looking for some mentorship you know would you make yourself available to uh, to talk with me if I have a, a question or an issue I mean by and large people will say yes it's true and you know, sometimes it, you just have to take that that step and, and do it. And like you said before, when the student is ready, the teacher appears. So sometimes when you least expect it, you find the person that, that is the right person for that period of time or in your yeah. life. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And sometimes it's such a simple thing. Like there's a young a young woman here in the community who who felt motivated to start a, class, a Torah class. She felt that she had what to share and she wanted to start a class and she you know, she kind of bounced it off me and I really encouraged her. I'm like, if you feel like you have something to share, by all means, do it. You know, this is the time to do it. There's technology, there's conference calling, there's so many opportunities, you know, and she's like, would it be okay if I put your name on my flyer? And I'm like, sure. Like, I don't, I don't know that anybody's going to be like, oh my gosh, Rookie Covell said, you know, I, I'm definitely I'm like, listen, I don't know how much cloud I have, but feel free to put my name on your flyer, you know? And I was like really trying to be that mentor that, that I, you know, needed at that age and that I, I very much got, you know, from people. So I think that anybody who has benefited from mentorship is happy to pay it forward and to just give that little bit of encouragement or guidance to someone new. I love that you said that too, because um, there's a principle in business that, you know, the, the successful business owner is, they're so open to talking to newbies or talking to people just getting started because they remember they were that that person at one point and so they're very much willing to talk and to you know guide others in the direction and help people to you know because you can't always see your blind spots but they can help you and they know what they went through and so they can help you avoid those blind spots but so it's um Exactly. And I think particularly women, I think that, you know, there's a strong like womanship of, of women helping women. For and sure. it's, it's really a beautiful um, facet to be leveraged. I agree. What do you think successful Jewish education will look like in the future? It's interesting. It's making me think, which is good. I actually suspect that while the internet is an extremely important tool, I think that the pendulum is going to be swinging back to in-person connections Mm -hmm. because first of all, COVID I think really helped people recognize that there's nothing like being with other human beings in person, but also that true relationships are forged by spending time in person. It's not just how it feels like it feels so good to be with other people, but besides for that, Like as much as I have actually made friends on Facebook, real friends, true friends, and I have made friends on, you know, WhatsApp. But if those friendships are not followed up with in-person, like getting on a plane and spending money and time to attend another person or to visit that person, it's just not going to be the same quality of relationship. And I think that, you know, as much as everybody was so excited about the internet and social media and look at all these connections that we can make, I think the pendulum is going to start to swing back. Not, not that we're not going to use it as a, as a supplemental tool, but really moving back to these in-person connections and, you know, even one-on-one study and like just, 
getting together in an actual group where the energy is bounced off of each other in a room, I, I, I think that's where Jewish education is, is going to go. Well, I totally agree with you that we, uh, it's so important. I, I, as a mother with young kids, that was, that's been very hard with the COVID thing is just, not being able to get together as much with friends and other kids. And uh, I have one in particular, my daughter is very social. So that was very hard. Yeah. um, It's, uh, it's, it's, I'm glad to see things kind of starting to open up more. And I think people are realizing how important that in-person connection is. And it's important that you said that and that we all acknowledge that. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I actually have one last question because I've been listening to a lot of Rabbi Daniel Lappin and I'm curious how you guys intersected. <laughs> so that's a good question. So um, when I wrote my second book, I wasn't really sure what the focus should be. And therefore, I wasn't really sure what kind of publisher to pursue. My first, the publisher of my first book, my first book is called Conversations with God, and that's like a contemporary prayer book, and it was published by Mosaical Press, which is a Jewish publisher. They distribute through Fellow Time. They sell in all the Jewish bookstores. That's the niche. With my second book, I really wanted to open it up more, um, not just in the Jewish religious, you know, sector. I wanted to seek a wider audience. So I was looking for a different publisher, even though I was very happy with my first publisher. Um, but the book... It's a muster book. So it's a book about, like I said, developing our character traits as a primary path to spirituality. So I couldn't decide if it was self-help or spiritual. Oh, I see. It was sort of too self-helpy to be a religious book, but it was like too religious to be a self-help book. And so I was sort of struggling with how to market it. And then I was on Facebook, of all things, (laughs) and I was crowdsourcing about the book and my publisher, Susan Lappin, yeah, Rabbi Daniel Lappin's wife, I think if I recall correctly, she found me on Facebook and she reached out to me and asked me if perhaps they might be the right um, publisher for me because they are spiritual self-help publishers um, that markets through the Christian world because the Christian religious market is much, much bigger than the Jewish religious market. Definitely. And so there was all this, you know, publishing opportunity that was much wider and broader than mine. And therefore, you know, I could get my book published to a much wider audience. And so I talked to my rabbi about that because it was geared primarily towards non-Jews. And, you know, like I said, that's not that's not my angle. I'm not trying to convert anybody. Um, but he said that if it would if it would assist in my goal of making the book more marketable for Jewish customers, then that, that would be a fine pathway to do so. And so um, that's how we ended up public. That's how I ended up publishing through the Lappins. And I've been, I've been thrilled. So cool how that all came together. I've been listening a lot to his podcasts and reading some of Susan's musings and everything. Yeah, it's they are powerhouses. Definitely. Rilke, thank you so much for uh, joining the podcast today. And we really appreciate being able to talk with you and learn from you. Thank and- you so much.